Want to know what strategies real graduates use to launch their career? Well, here's your chance. From personal stories to insider tips, our interviews with graduates and campus recruiters will equip you with the knowledge and inspiration you need to take off and stand out from the crowd. Brought to you by Prospel, your one-stop shop for finding and securing your dream internship or fresh graduate job. Look, I think I was looking at the page views on our articles earlier, and I think six of the top 10 most viewed articles around salary. So I think that says everything you need to know. Um, certainly about students and how interested they are in knowing what they're worth, let's say. So I thought having a chat about how to maximize your salary is a really good topic to kick off on. Should we jump straight in, Rich? Great. Awesome. The first one for me is think carefully about the time frame over which you want to maximize your salary because there's different ways you can go about it. You can play the short game and maximize for immediate salary out of the gate as a grad. Or the other end of the spectrum is treat this as a longer game and think about salary or earning potential over the course of a 40-year career or whatever it might be. And depending on which of the two you're focusing on, it can lead to slightly different decisions. I'll give an example. There's some careers out there or pathways, jobs where you have quite a high initial salary as a graduate straight out of the gate. Engineering comes to mind. Doctors are a good example, very well paid, often towards the top end of salary rankings by sector, but less rewarding upside compared to other potential careers. So you paid well to begin with. It's unusual to see a pure engineering-focused career end up getting paid multi-million dollars unless you go down the management path and you know leadership and CEO and that type of stuff. But pure engineering would be unlikely to see enormous salaries there. There's always exceptions to the rule, of course. If, if I can to the other end of the spectrum where you might have a more modest starting salary or even no salary at all in the instance of, for example, entrepreneurship and startups. You take a big haircut there, but if you get it right, there's huge upsides and you can make huge amounts of money, which would make anything you could possibly earn as an engineer or a doctor look like rounding errors. And then there's, also, of course, it's not just startup and entrepreneurship that has the high upside potential. It's a lot of careers that have that sort of higher risk profile built into the career progression. So Rich, you and I used to be in management consulting. Management consulting is known for being quite a brutal pyramid structure and you have to fight really hard to get to the top and become a partner, an equity partner. But of course, if you get there, chances are you're going to be earning millions of dollars. That's right. I often call them gray-haired professions. It's competitive to get in. It's a lot of hours to begin with, and the amount you get rewarded for the hours you're putting in is it's really it's not a lot in the beginning. But they call them gray-haired professions because you start getting a reward for it once you've got gray hair. And part of the reason for that is that it takes those professions that your worth is often built on your experience, and it just takes a long time to get that experience. You're going to be the best lawyer in the room or if you're going to be the best strategist in the room you need to have had a lot of experience behind you but you're right Jeff it's a really good one to think about out at the outset whether or not you need to make a lot of money really quickly or you're prepared to be patient and build a career pros and cons if you are going to pick the ladder and be patient and build a career you want to be sure that you're not the kind of person that gets bored with things easily if you want to be a lawyer and a top lawyer you need to be prepared to stick it out in that profession for 20 years which is no longer the norm. Most people are changing careers 
every seven years and jobs much more often. That way of thinking of picking a company and sticking with it for decades and decades is, is no longer that common. So it's worth thinking about that when you're making these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point, Rich. And that's probably a nice segue into the second point I wanted to talk about, which is risk versus reward. They say there's no such thing as asymmetric upside without asymmetric risk. And you will have noticed in the types of careers we've talked about already, consulting where you've got a steep pyramid structure or entrepreneurship where you've got an enormous amount of risk built in where the the startup might fail. The more risk you take on, the often, or at least the way it should work, the higher upside potential there should be. So very high onto the startup failing. But if you manage to make it work, then of course, you know, you may have the next Facebook on your hands. Who knows? I'm using extreme examples here, but the same goes for a lot of careers. If you're willing to take on risk, be it in the form of equity or performance bonuses or revenue share or commissions based on your performance, if the risk sits with you, then often the case is the employer or the people you're working with will be willing to give up more of the share of the pie to compensate you for the fact that you are taking on risk. So if we're talking commissions as a salesperson, a pretty common split in sales is 60-40, 60% base salary, 40% commission. And a lot of sales roles, that 40% commission, this is of your total take-home package, is uncapped upside in the sense that if you do unbelievably well, then you take home a lot of money. And so it's just a, it's a common example of this risk-reward structure. So it's worth really thinking about how much risk you're willing to take on. There's obviously pros and cons. A lot of people say when you're younger, that's the time to take on more risk. But of course, there's always downsides and it can pop up in unexpected places. One thing that comes to mind as an entrepreneur is when it comes time to borrow money, to buy a house. The banks, when you're trying to get a loan, will not like, will not give any weight to anything that's basically not a fixed salary that you've had for multiple years. And so it can come back to haunt you in other ways. Uh, and these are things that are worth very much thinking through. Absolutely. And I suppose you were touching mostly on sharing the financial risk and reward there, Jeff, but there's also another element of risk that is often built into salaries, which is Look, it could be personal risk or it could be risk that a really bad outcome happens. And a couple of examples of those kind of jobs where you get paid really well, but part of that pay is actually compensating you for taking on a lot of risk or perhaps a lot of stress is, for example, being an air traffic controller or perhaps being an obstetrician. So both of those jobs, I'll talk about air traffic control, pays very well, requires no university degree. They're hiring right now, actually. Australia can't get enough air traffic controllers. They'll train you, give you everything they need that you need to do and I'm pretty sure the package starts at something north of $100,000 but the catch there if there is one is that it's actually kind of a risky job and a very stressful job so when you're thinking about that kind of career you got to be prepared to say am I happy to be responsible for an air disaster or to have played a part in that if that were to happen and that's what's happening and it's same with an obstetrician they're one of the best paid medical specialists but it's because they're taking on a huge amount of risk and they're up for potentially very large lawsuits every year if something goes wrong. And so when you're thinking about, if you're looking at a salary package, 
it's really important to think about why might that be why might they be paying so much for me to do this role what is the catch there yeah it's a good point rich i think i read a while ago the average tenure of a ceo is now four years different type of risk again it's a career risk you get paid the big bucks because you don't tend to last very long in those positions and people know that and therefore you have to compensate them well Anyway, so that's worth being really honest with yourself because it's not nice. It's all well and good to say, yeah, I want to maximize salary and yeah, load up on the risk, but it's going to keep you up at night, sweating bullets over whether you can pay the next electricity bill. You have to think about whether that's worth it or not. Hold on. Awesome. So the next big one here, and this kind of comes becomes apparent when you start to look at industry and sector level data is as a graduate, really picking the sector you go into can make a big difference. Now, we'll just focus on day one. We talked about this short versus long-term game. We'll focus on the short-term game for now. If you're really focused on salary as one of the main metrics that you're solving for in a grad job, then make sure you jump gradaustralia.com. You download the salary report. We'll link to it in the description. But what you'll notice straight away is there's enormous variation in salaries depending on the sector you pick we're talking knocking on the door of 80 grand for some tech actually over 80 grand for mining oil and gas at one end of the spectrum and in the sort of 50s and low 60s at the other and so this is obviously all taking into account a lot of the stuff we've already talked about like risk supply and demand if you're serious about maximizing salary you can't really look past starting at this point and thinking okay Where's the big bucks to begin with? Same goes for location. And this is one that sector is obvious, right? There's some sectors that clearly pay more, but location is something that most people overlook. Now, there's interesting quirks and drivers here around why some locations are paid better than others. For example, here in Australia, locations with a higher concentration of mining jobs, fly in, fly out, tend to bump up the average. But generally speaking, Here in South Australia, where I'm based at the moment, graduate jobs tend to be materially lower than in Sydney. And that's just a supply and demand thing. Again, got more headquarters in Sydney, more global corporations, fiercely competing at the top end of town for talented grads. And that just plays out in the salary. Anything you'd add to that, Rich? Look, just on the sectors, it's really important to get onto Grad Australia and have a look around. At the moment, there's a couple of graduate jobs that are offering salaries of $200,000. And this is just completely unheard of in other years, but it's a reality for students graduating this year and next year, particularly with the trading firms. For students that are out there that want to make a lot of money quickly, there's never been a better time to graduate. So doing your research and thinking about what sector you want to start in is really important. Again, coming back to the risk, it's worth thinking about asking that question, why might this firm be paying $200,000 for a grad? What will I be expected to do? as a trader here and without knowing exactly i'd probably guess that you'd be expected to start making a profit for the firm of more than two hundred thousand dollars in your first year and if that's not happening consistently year after year you're going to be on your way out or that salary won't be sticking around but for those that have got the skills and can do that then it's an incredible time to be graduating absolutely that's the best in certainly in my lifetime for graduates it's a, it really is a employees market at the moment lots of firms out there fighting tooth and nail to hire great grads salary is the thing you're 
looking to maximize for, then you're graduating at the right time. A nice segue into my final point, which is you can negotiate if you have leverage. Now, big caveat here, and we'll do an entirely different episode on this because, you know, how to negotiate the nuances of that so that's effective and working out whether or not you have leverage, whether or not it's appropriate to negotiate a salary. There's a little bit involved with that. But at least for this episode, the point is you'll never know if you don't ask. And so if you feel like salary really matters to you and you feel like you're in a good position, you have a lot to offer and what you have to offer is what, you know, more than what the firm, what the offer on the table is, then no harm in asking. Jeff, did you think about negotiating when you got your your offer to join your graduate job? No, not once. I was happy to have an offer, first of all. And so I figured beggars can't be choosers. And I was also playing the long game. And I was confident. We'll talk about this in another episode, but I was confident that I could do well and demonstrate my value and come back to the negotiating table in six to 12 months once I'd shown what I was capable of. And that, And at that point, it's a lot easier to negotiate a salary rather than as an unknown quantity amongst lots of other grads where they don't really know what type of work you're going to do. Yeah. How about you? Oh gosh, I was so naive at the time. I don't think it even crossed my mind. Okay. Same as you, just happy to have an offer and figured it's, we'll go into this in a later episode, but it wasn't the right time. Certainly wasn't the, actually, I should tell you one thing I did negotiate on though, is at the firm we joined, there was a signing bonus. I don't need to remember that, Jeff. Yeah, I did. And I had this period where I had graduated, but I wasn't going to start the job for another 12 months, but I was actually finishing uni pretty soon. And so that signing bonus would come in very handy if I could get it now. It was time rich and cash poor. So I did negotiate mm-hmm. that early. And that's been fun. I had a couple more points to add just before we wrap this up, Jeff. Another thing to think about is when you're looking at the variation in different sectors and particularly different roles, even within the same sector, it's important to understand how many hours you're going to be expected to work in those roles and back solving what the hourly rate is going to be. Again, this plays in a little bit to whether you're playing the short game or the long game. You might see an offer from an investment bank or even a management consulting company that is north of $100,000. And you might think that's great. And how could you compare that with an offer for fifty dollars or $60,000 to join an accounting firm? But the reality is you'll probably be expected to work twice as many hours at the former rather than the latter. And that's, and remember, with a progressive tax system, the amount you get taxed on those last dollars is much more than the amount you get taxed on those first dollars. So it's worth doing the maths and thinking about, is the second 40 hours of my week really best spent working for this? Or is it best spent playing sport, doing my own startup, doing a side hustle? Who knows what it is? For many people, it's totally fine. They want to work hard and they want to make an impact. Uh, and that's great. But if that's not for you, be really honest with yourself about that in the beginning. I was just going to add, Rich, like we, we've made the mistake of, or at least I've made the mistake of focusing exclusively on salary so far, but you're dead right to bring up that you want to not just focus on the output, the salary, but the inputs. And for a lot of people, work-life balance is rightly a focus. I'm not sure that we ever published it. I'll have to look it up and put it online if we didn't, but I did do the numbers a while back on comparing effective hourly rates for different graduate careers. And I actually compared it to different trades, carpenters and plumbers and whatnot. And for most of the entry-level graduate salaries on an hourly basis, they were earning less than a trade. Now, this was the case a few years ago. So I know cost of trade has gone through the roof now. It's probably almost certainly be the case now. 
but yeah, the work working hours do differ significantly between sectors, and we do have some data on this. You know, banking, investment banking in particular, pays very well, but they're going to want their pound of flesh in terms of work hours. It's fascinating. I think this is also a really personal question to answer as well. But for some people, working 16 hours a day on something they love or 20 hours a day, like it's skin off their back, it's water off their back. They don't mind because it's what they're doing. I remember actually, I think Peter Thiel, no, it's not Peter Thiel, it's, it's another guy who said that, look, I can be better at this thing that I do than anyone else because when I work 18 hours a day, it doesn't feel like work. It's just what I want Elon to be doing. Uh, Elon Musk is saying something uh, like, if I work 100-hour weeks and everyone else is working 50, then it takes me six months to do what everyone else is. Am I getting my wires crossed here? It's probably the same point. Yeah. It's not who I'm thinking of. It's, you mentioned it as well. the co-founder of AngelList. Ah, uh, Naval. Naval, Naval. He, yeah, he reckons that if his unfair advantage is being able to work hard on the things that he cares about, and so the point is, if you love investment banking, you love consulting and working 16 hours a day without it feeling like work, that's a great advantage to you. And therefore, this kind of conversation perhaps isn't as relevant. But if you're someone else and working more than eight hours a day is really hard work, then those extra eight hours you're going to have to work in a day, it's going to be painful. And so tricking yourself into thinking that oh, I'll just get there and it'll all be all right, maybe, but maybe not it really does come down to what you like as an individual and how you like to work two very good points so don't just focus on salary yeah look the final point i'd make is around optionality and diversification part of it's related to playing the long game that we spoke about earlier perhaps some of these gray head professions if you go deep on becoming a lawyer for example and particularly if you focus on a specialized part of law it can be hard to it can be hard to unwind these decisions. And so your pay might be going up, but if you're not really enjoying what you're doing, it's hard to jump ship and it's hard to say, let's say you get 10 years down the path of being an IP lawyer and then you realize, you wake up one day and you realize you don't really like IP law, but you do like the $200,000 salary that you've got gotten yourself used to. It's hard for you to switch into something else and keep that salary. Whereas another example, management consulting, would say that if you've got so far down that line and you're getting used to your $200,000 salary, that actually has a whole lot more optionality. There's many things you could jump to from there that would probably allow you to keep your salary and do something different. I remember clearly I, when I was an intern, Jeff, I used to work at the now uh, non-existent car maker Holden and General Motors Holden. And back then, Jeff and I were both engineers as well. I was a kid in a candy shop. I couldn't have asked for a better job. I was getting to work with all these cool software and drive cars around and work with really smart people i remember getting to know the two guys that ran this crash simulation software and i thought it was fascinating they would build up an entire car using 3d models each component representing the exact material that the real life one was and they could run hundreds of crashes per day changing little things in the car to try and reduce the loads on the passengers and get a better safety rating I just thought that was fascinating and what a cool job. And so I started speaking to these guys more and more and they were, they didn't see it the same way. They said, I started out, I loved it. I thought it was the best and I got into it. And now I'm 20 years into a career. There's only one company in the country that will hire me because Holden's the only one still doing this. I've got no other options. And as we all know, five years later, Holden stopped making cars and 
I don't know what those two guys got up to, but they'd obviously seen the writing on the wall. And it's not just that they ran out of opportunities, but they'd also fallen out of love with what they did. And when you combine that with not being able to keep that same salary and do something else, it's worth thinking about. When you're thinking about what you want to do, diversification or like the how broad the skills that you're building can be used is an important factor to consider. It's a really good one. And the, the context of such a, it's an elaboration on the point about risk. More optionality in your career equals lower risk. The more highly specialized one firm in the country that can employ you, they're obviously very valuable to that particular company. But like in the example of Holden, there's more risk built into that career path. And if things go pear-shaped, then it's not so good for your earning potential unless you learn to move overseas in this instance. I actually remember a similar conversation when I was start. I was actually, believe it or not, tossing up between going down the government grad role pathway and consulting. And I was genuinely on the fence. The salaries were pretty similar. Not that was a big driver for me. Now, I obviously knew that consulting had a much higher upside potential than government career paths. But what got me was one of the partners at the time sat me down and said, look, Jeff, if you're not sure, then you really want to start in consulting because you start at a well-regarded consulting firm and you can make the crossover into the public sector any day of the week. Anyone will hire you. He warned me, and this is coming from a guy who'd come from the public sector. Rod Stims actually is now chairman of the ACCC. He warned me saying the opposite isn't always true. You start out as a grad in the public sector and it can be very difficult for you to transition into management consulting, at least in a way where you're going to have your experience recognized. He said you may come back and start again as a grad and if you're comfortable starting at the bottom floor, then that's fine. Anyway, that's just another way of saying that because I wasn't quite sure the optionality and all the potential career paths that I had as a graduate who wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do were very appealing. And of course, that also plays out in the earning potential throughout your career. It's a good point. I wouldn't have picked you as a public servant, Jeff. I think you yeah. made the right choice. Yeah. I just goes to show how naive I was. Awesome. So that's everything on my list, Rich. Do you have any other tips on salary before we wrap up? Look, I had one more point, actually. It's a very small one, but it's also important to be honest with yourself about the likelihood of promotion. If we, we again go back to some of those professions like being a lawyer or being a management consultant, and if you're making your decision based on the assumption that you get through to partner, and it's all about just doing your time until you get to partner, it's good to think about the probability of that actually happening and being honest with yourself. Because it is only, I don't know what it would have been for management consulting, but for every hundred grads that go in, I'd say probably only two or three of them would go on to, to make partner. So it's a very small cohort going in and it's much even smaller cohort that make it to these really high paying positions. And this happens in different ways in different sectors. You, you've got to factor that into your decision making. Don't just assume that once you're in, then it's all going to happen. In many of these industries, we keep talking about management consulting, but that's the one we probably know best. Once you get in, it's starting all over again. You're back at the ground. You've got to prove yourself again. Most of them will have up or out policies. And so unless you back yourself to win in that competitive environment, it again might not be the right decision for you. Yeah, totally. And you can do the maths like you without getting too cute with the numbers. You can work out if there's 100 grads 
and 10 partners and they're taking 100 grads every year and they're appointing one new partner, you can do the maths pretty easily. Especially with LinkedIn these days, you can get a pretty good profile of a firm. So you can work out the risk inherent in a career path and then you can start to compare it on terms. It starts to, when you take into account the one or 10% chance of becoming a partner, this is assuming, of course, that you're bang on average, then all of a sudden, the more, you know, secure career paths in inverted commas, like pure play engineering or doctors or whatever it might be, where less upside, but also less risk of your career being derailed totally, all of a sudden they may start to look a lot more attractive. Definitely. Now, before you go and accuse us all of being too shallow, this episode was just on salary, but of course, that's not the only factor. Many reasons why you might choose particularly career path. We'll do another episode on that later, I reckon, Jeff. But this is just, if you put all those factors aside and you are just thinking about salary and pay, hopefully this has been useful in stepping that through. Awesome. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff.